Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P. Hello again, and welcome to my time capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my time capsule is, as I hope the title suggests, a podcast where I ask my guests to tell me the five things from their life, four they cherish and one they loathe and would like to be rid of, that they would put in a time capsule. Simple, but with surprising results. My guest in this episode is the comedian, writer, broadcaster and popularizer of scientific ideas... Robin Ince, who is probably best known as the co-host of the Sony Gold Award-winning BBC Radio 4 series, The Infinite Monkey Cage, which he presents with Professor Brian Cox. He also co-hosts the podcast Robin and Josie's Book Shambles with Josie Long, which is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network, which he also co-created. His most recent book, I'm a Joke and So Are You, was described by Chortle as one of the best books ever written about what it means to be a comedian. He also wrote the book The Bad Book Club, as well as writing and presenting documentaries about the history of self-help, comedians and melancholy, Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds, Richard Feynman, General Relativity and Dr Seuss. Obviously. As a stand-up, he has toured the world. He's won three Chortle Awards, the Time Out Outstanding Achievement Award, and he was nominated for the British Comedy Awards Best Live Show. He has created, curated, pioneered, and hosted numerous nights, mixing science, music, and comedy at some of the most celebrated venues around the world. His brainchild, Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People, continues to sell out theatres every year, over a decade after its first appearance. He has received an honorary fellowship of UCL, an honorary doctorate from Royal Holloway College, University of London, and is a fellow of the British Science Association. He's also a lovely bloke, as I think you'll discover now. Have fun. (laughs) 
Do you know what I love about this moment is that I have no idea at all what we're going to talk about. Good. That's how I spend my life. Yes, exactly, yeah. When I've been doing interviews for the new book I'm doing, the, the people very often go, oh, I'm sorry, I really went off on one there. It doesn't matter because tangents are where things arrive, aren't they? Yeah. So, Robin, welcome to my time capsule. And uh, I want to find out what you've got. What are you going to put inside our time capsule? It's such, a, it's such an interesting thing to do because it, time capsules are the reason that I first realised my level of kind of uh, morbidity and sense of mortality. Because I remember when they did it on Blue Peter, I must have been eight years old and I did the fraction. I thought if I live to be 70, hang on, what's the fraction? I realised that I'd lived through whatever it was, one ninth of my life, and then went into a kind of blind existential panic. So I've been in an existential panic since <laughs> I was eight years old. Now, it's very hard. I've, I've surrounded myself with, with, with bits and pieces. And I, I thought I'd start off with, it doesn't have to be in any chronological order, does it? No, anything you like in any order. This is the first thing that I'm going to put in. This is a hard thing to work out. Carl Sagan, the uh, great astronomer and science communicator, he, he wrote a book called Pale Blue Dot. And it's probably one of the most important books in terms of the trajectory, whatever sense of career I have, whatever you want to call it, whatever I end up doing, is because Pale Blue Dot was amusing over when Voyager had reached Saturn. Carl Sagan, after a lot of arguments, because people did not understand why they should do this, suggested that an image was taken of the Earth from Saturn. And of course, everyone was looking outwards. Let's have a look at the photographs of where we're going in the yeah, solar system. And he was saying, well, let's have a look at our place in the solar system. So they managed to get these incredible images, which called pale blue dot because it's this tiny dot even from the parochial size of the solar system our planet is so small and that's what he wanted he wanted to get that sense of fragility yes and the good fortune that, that we have to be in that particular area to be in this this zone a goldilocks zone as it, as it is sometimes called the possibility of life and so i i love this book i could even just turn the car seconds play just to even just show the image but i think if this was in here it would give people uh, the full. If you if you don't know, uh, it's the, a famous uh, picture, isn't it? Because it is so uh, extraordinary. It's an extraordinary picture. It's the blueness of it as well. Yeah. When you say little blue dot, it really is bright blue. Isn't well, it's it? such an. Um, where are we? Take a look again at that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you've ever heard of, every human being, whoever was, lived out their lives. So even that, just that bit alone in the time capsule, if there wasn't enough space and I had to cut out some pages, and of course, you know me, I do not damage books, (laughs) uh, but um, that would... Because it, it also, what I find fascinating about it, because the other image that I would think of would be to take the image Earthrise taken by Apollo 8. Yeah. Um, Apollo 8, which went to to look at the moon, and uh, so it didn't land on the moon, but it surveyed the moon. And there's this beautiful story, which is Jim Lovell and uh, Bill Anders. Bill Anders basically was a bit annoyed by the moon. There he was, being one of the you know the, the first people to get a sense of what it looked like, a close up sense. He was annoyed at how boring it was. <laughs> oh, we've come all this way, such a boring thing, isn't it? And then. It just was fortunate that looking out the window, suddenly they saw the earth and Lovell and Anders were like, quick, get the camera, get the camera. And the commander, Borman, he, he was like, no, it's not on the itinerary. And they're like, bah! <laughs> Both those stories to me are a fascinating also theory of how we very often on our journeys go looking for the wrong thing. 
We go looking for what we think is the expansive outward picture, and actually the interesting picture is back there. Mm. So, um, I mean, the Apollo 8 mission is a great mission. It's also on vomiting and diarrhea and all manner of other things. It's, it's, it's <laughs> why they made Apollo 13, just because, it, you know, that you can see, but it, I think they should have done a follow-up because, you know, three astronauts floating in space trying to collect the bits of diarrhea that have unfortunately come out from the uh, commander who's slightly <laughs> ill and then getting the Earthrise picture. That's the one thing that never comes across when you watch films involving space exploration is you never get the sense of the smell because that's what <laughs> often you hear is that when they actually land, of course, they were so small. They had such t- those modules and, and the stink. Everybody takes a step back. <laughs> <laughs> that picture of uh, the Earth rise, that's through the window of the module, isn't it? Mm. As an eight-year-old boy, those sort of things, they do fascinate you. But people move on. You really haven't, have you? You've, it's stuck with you right through. Yeah, I mean, I had a bit a period of time, probably in my 20s, probably from some time where I failed my physics exam to about 26 years old. And then it was another book by Carl Sagan. It was Demon Haunted World, uh, written also with, with his, his wife, Andrean, that made me think, oh, you need to mull over these things more and made me think more about the fact that, you know, stand-up could be used for other things, you know, as well as jokes. Yeah, it's a good way of expressing ideas. It's sometimes very difficult and often don't get it right. Maybe always don't get it right. And I do find that I've during the lockdown period, it's been good to have an escape rather than watch every single briefing and keep it and the politics. I allow that to play out its ghastly uh, kind of uh, you know tableau and narrative. And I've been contemplating instead on holographic principles that black holes reveal that we might all just be two-dimensional projections, and it's a tremendous relief. Uh, it's a tremendous <laughs> it, relief to think we might merely be projections. For me too, yeah, very much so, yes. I, <laughs> that's kept me going. <laughs> but I do, yeah, Earthrise, I, I would recommend everyone to look at it more often. And there's an astronaut that I've, I've a man called Rusty Schweikart, who was Apollo 9, and he's a really interesting guy. Apollo 9 was the, the, the test out the lunar module. So again, didn't land on the moon, but test out the module. And he did that mission. And he was very interestingly prepared for it as well. Every Sunday night before he went on the, on the Apollo 9 mission, he would read different books. He would read bits of philosophy and bits of literature and kind of, and he would listen to great music. And he, he rolled up little scrolls, almost like kind of Rizzler scrolls of little bits of text that he took with him. And then... It was about five years later when it really properly dawned on him. So obviously it's all gestating. And then suddenly he was at this conference. It was actually on Long Island in the US, but it was named Lindisfarne after the monkish retreat. And um, he wasn't properly prepared to do his speech. And he had a couple of ideas and he just started talking. And as he talked, he realised just what it meant, not merely for him, but for human beings. He, He sees... Apollo is the start of our journey beyond our planet, that the Earth is our mother, and like every child, there is a point where you have to leave your mother and you have to go out on hmm. your own. And it's, yeah, I've, I just, I love all those stories because I think we, we dwell so much on this really tedious, melodramatic soap opera, this badly written, all these <laughs> two-dimensional characters that populate our political system, you know, that you would write out. You know, if you looked at the script of every day, you go, do you know what? This character's not working. <laughs> they're, they're, they're tedious. He's they're so predictable. predictable. Yes. Yeah, all of those things. And so I, I do think if we spend more time thinking about our position in space and the the un, unlikely nature of every I, I was chatting this morning with a guy called uh, David Christian who works on on big history project and big history is that idea that really to study history we have to go back to the big bang 
you have to place human beings in the narrative that is right from the very start of, of at least this version of events, this last, you know, 13.7 billion years of events. So I think I would, you know, the time capsule, I would, I would want to have things that reflected these human ambitions. Yeah. I know that some people find the enormity of it, the vastness of the whole thing and the scale of the time involved almost impossible to conceive and, in fact, frightening. So they sort of disregard it on that basis, I think. So being able to take that in and look at it and then see yourself in the context of it, because it makes us look so insignificant, really, Mm. doesn't it? But that's part of it, I think, which is... Uh, if you look at it on scale, on size, and I think no one can comp- comprehend it really, even the, the no. cosmologists that I talk about, they have some equations and they have, you know, these, even when you see those magnificent images, these deep field images, we're not really, I think, inside getting the true sense of the magnitude. But if we look at size, we're insignificant. If we look at the fact that we are a collection of atoms that is able to ask questions and suffer from anxiety, the mere fact that we are anxious about the scale of the universe is something that pretty much everything else, all the inanimate objects we look around at, you know, Jupiter, it does not have an ego. Jupiter does <laughs> not have, have paranoia and anxiety. And that's the beautiful thing as well. If you look at some of the most wonderful sights of the universe they are not as complex as we are it takes fewer equations to explain the moon and saturn and all of those things yes and that's why i think to me the the size of the universe and all the things that we currently know it contains they are not the bits that you should be the anxiety to me comes from human behavior the week before we were recording this the jupiter above the moon looked fantastic it was really bright and and i think one of the things that's been interesting about the lockdown is that we've had such a limited porthole to look out of. So most of us have had, you know, some people have been locked down to their house. Some people are lucky and maybe they they, they live near the countryside or are able to go for a walk. But if even the walk has probably been the same walk every day and we've been able to watch the seasons and you you find i was telling someone about i've got a little garden and there was it's enough space to do the kettlebells and all that stuff you know during the <laughs> lockdown and it happened to be that every day when i was doing sit-ups there was this one daffodil and this became my exercise daffodil i would look at this daffodil and then i watched the daffodil as the kind of you know the, the trumpet of the petals began to dry and it started to die and i'd put up a picture each day on instagram and people became <laughs> very emotionally connected to how's the exercise daffodil we didn't see that i'm afraid the exercise daffodil has returned from when it came. you know all oh, of those no. things yeah um and i found the same <laughs> looking out of my my uh, my my window every night i've gone it's the same square mm. in terms of for me but in the sky, of course, it's not the same square. You know, the movement throughout the night and throughout the month, all of those things, I think, are just, uh, it's what we need to do more often. I, I think very often when one of the last trips I had was to Euston, and Euston is all the, the blocks of flats and office blocks have been knocked down because of HS2 or something like that, I think, mm. or one of the links or, or, or some other pointless uh, uh, gesture <laughs> of transportation. And um, seeing the amount of sky that you could see, and I realised that for so many people in cities, they're almost entirely robbed of the sky. Yes. And and you you live... Uh, you're, you're, you're I can see of, the sky, definitely, yeah. yes. And there's not much street lighting, so I can I can see the sky at night. I'm, uh, I've always loved the stars, I have to say. I'm like you. I find it endlessly fascinating. And I, I love the scale of it. I love the scale of both the time and the size. Mm-hmm. And it does make me, strangely, not, not feel unimportant 
Oh, no, no, that's, I can't have that many negatives. Hang on a second. <laughs> it, it does make me feel important. It makes me feel important that I'm part of it. And uh, I remember talking to my son once, rather drunkenly in a garden in France, looking at the stars. And he was saying, uh, isn't it sad that those stars, they, they set that light off all that time ago? You know, some of them millions of years ago. And it's just landed on the grass. And that's the end of its journey. And I said, I know, but one of them landed at the back of your eye. Mm. Uh, how important do you feel now? That's an extraordinary thing. Yeah. We are a way of the universe to question itself and try and understand itself. And I, I think that is, you know, it's always going to be a battle. But I think that's a pretty good story to have. If you're going to be insignificant, that's a pretty significant insignificance, isn't it? Isn't it just? Isn't it just? Well, for its sake, then, we shall put Carl Sagan's book into the time capsule as your first item. It's a lovely thing. Okay, right. So item number two, please. I think I'm going to choose this, which is, uh, it was a gift that I was given by someone who comes regularly to some of the shows I put on. It is my Kurt Vonnegut doll. Uh, I'm a big fan of, of of Kurt Vonnegut. I think again he he wrote in a, a wonderful, humane way. He, uh, of course, was at Dresden when it was bombed as a, as a prisoner of war, and mm. uh, that led to his in, incredible novel um, Slaughterhouse Five. And it's also because not only do do I just like I think you know Kurt Vonnegut is someone whose memory should live on, but the person I'm not sure if this comes with the doll or whether they made it separately, but it also has uh, a little placard that Vonnegut holds, and it is uh, there's only one rule that I know of: God damn it, you've got to be kind. Uh, which is from God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, uh, where uh, the narrator must give advice to all the babies of the world that might live to be 100 years old. And that's why I just thought that that object with that placard, and if people then start questioning who Kurt Vonnegut is, and hopefully in some of the other time capsules that are dotted around, they might have left one of his books as well as they start digging them all up. Yeah, um, they've got a sense of who he is. Yeah, even alone, just it's an interesting face, isn't it? You know, that's... Uh, it's a fine moustache. Uh, it's... Um, it's a wonderful moustache. It's, it's, it's beautifully... Uh, yeah, he was, he, like Carl Sagan, he was a, a, another person that once I started reading books and watching interviews and things like that, I thought this opens up different thoughts. Because in one way, what to me is interesting about Vonnegut is somewhere in there is a, is a great pessimism. He had seen the worst behaviour of humanity. He had uh, you know, seen utter tragedy mm. and destruction. But also in his books... It's as if there's a battle against saying, we as human beings, what strange and destructive creatures we are, and yet. There's an and yet and there's a but, I think, there. Hmm. So even something like Galapagos, which is one of my favourites, where it turns out in our evolution, eventually we don't make it through. Some <laughs> weird kind of reasonably thoughtless, sylph-like creature makes it through. Some some silken idiot creature makes it through to the Galapagos Islands and says, in some ways, it doesn't feel depressing. The end doesn't feel uh, depressing. If anything, sometimes it feels like a relief as well. So I, I like the way that he deals. Sometimes on, on there's a grand scale to his ambitions, but it's so often you can you know, the voice is is a voice that is very much centered on planet Earth, wherever he's taking you, and you you hear his intention, his intention for the hope of humanity. And his warnings, you know, the the sad thing is his, his uh, I think it was his last book, Man Without a Country, was in his despair at seeing he, he wasn't going to write again. And then Bush Jr. got into power and he just despaired that such a thing could happen. 
And you now go, oh, my God, what book would he have written in 2016 when, you know, Trump was uh, made president? My God, yes. Extraordinary, isn't it? I do love that fact when people could easily blame everybody and blame the whole world and cast it aside because of their experiences, that what they get from it is a sense that actually, well, what we all need to do is to stop doing that and be nice to each other, Mm. and that will make things better. It's an extraordinary conclusion to come to rather than, well, I'm going to get a gun and protect myself. It's a wonderful sense of uh, a belief in the nature of humanity, I think. A lot of the things, like God damn it, you've got to be kind, somehow have been made to sound banal. Mm. So, you know, th- there's that beautiful speech that Rick Mayle did when he got his uh, honorary doctorate, I think, at um, Exeter University. And at the end of doing this very funny speech, slightly sweary speech and all this mm-hmm. kind of thing, and he just ends by saying, love is the answer. Love is the answer, my friends. Love is the answer. And all of those things have been made to sound dull, trite, banal. And yet, love is very, very hard. The sacrifice, the fact that the moment that you you, you love something, then you realise you will face the loss of something and all mm-hmm. of the, the anxiety and the pain that goes with it. Scientifically... All the research shows the benefit of your Harry Harlow, who did these experiments with, I'm sure you might have seen it, with the wire monkey, the wire monkey with the food or the the, the soft monkey with the kind of sucker. And it shows that, that love and comfort are the things that, you know, and, and rats, when they do, they do, you know, you place a rat in an area where there is a lot of stimulation and it will, the neural links, et cetera, neural connections will be enhanced. It will be happier. It will be all of those, or as much as we can measure the happiness of a rat, obviously. <laughs> um, and I think we have a battle against quite often what I would say are the, the, the moneyed interests. You know, when you hear someone saying, will you do it if you could? Yeah. And when someone like, I won't even mention the name, you know, some of the ghastly kind of people who got promoted because they would trend on Twitter because they were so poisonous. Mm. the number of times that they would write something and they'd say, I'm just saying what everyone else is thinking. Yeah. And if you say that enough when you're being particularly vicious and dismissive and inhumane to whoever the outsiders are, whoever the people who are battling are, whoever the people that are, then eventually other people go, oh, yeah, actually, I think everyone else would, you know, dodge paying their tax. And I think everyone else, yeah, yeah, you'd probably nick a few extra sweets from that jar. And, you, and so you just presume if you're not going to do it, someone else will. Mm. And you also you see things like the fact that on the plus side, if you do something nice, if you do something kind, if you do something altruistic, if you use your empathy, it is not uh, an act without reward. No. Because you know that bit where you go, oh, I feel... Uh, I mean, a very marginal example of this was I remember changing trains at uh, Northampton years ago. And uh, I can't remember what had happened, but there'd been, been some kind of accident on the line or whatever. And I just said to the, the ticket guy, I said, oh, can I just pop out and go to the cafe and just get a cup of tea? And he went, oh, yeah, yeah, that, that, that's fine. Uh, milk, two sugars, mate. Uh, and I thought, all right, then I will. And so I came back. He said, what's that? I said, it's a cup of tea. He said, oh, I, don't. I said, no, 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 but well. You said milk, two sugars, here's a cup of tea and a Kit Kat. And, uh, you know, probably a reasonably pointless gesture. I'm sure there's a kettle and thing. But nevertheless, it meant we had just this little bit. We had a, a, a little connection. Yeah. And, and I think of all the people, you know, who've done kind things and – you know, that, that moment that you have a connection with someone and the trust you then have for that person and the dopamine that you get. You know, there's all these other things that go on and they really are... I mean, when I see the aggression on social media now, I've kind of detached myself from, from social media apart from Instagram now. 
Mm. Because it feeds so much on anger. It feeds so much on, have you seen this person? Have you yeah, seen that person? Yeah, look what so-and-so person? said. Yes. Yeah. Mm. And it seems so destructive because... You hear you know those old things, like, oh, if you punch a cushion, you get rid of your aggression. Oh, if you play rugby, you get rid of your aggression. And as far as I can see, all the research into that is it doesn't actually. Displaying aggression and using your aggression, even if you might consider it in an anodyne way, actually, if anything, refreshes your aggression. You don't wake up with a tremendous sense of relief the next day. It's still there. And if anything, it might have been exacerbated. <laughs> and would you change anybody's opinion? That's the point. When you put these things up, the people who agree with it are the people who agreed with it beforehand, I think. And the people who disagree with it continue to disagree with it and get angry about it. So it's sort of a pointless act. I know it's important to protest and it's important to make a point. Mm. But I often feel that people would be better off writing a joke on Twitter or putting up a funny picture of a cat. That would cheer me up more. I, I find I find that you're right. As I've got older and older, taking the time to, to be kind. I tend to be kind by being a bit mad uh, just to cheer people up. Because at least then, if they're not laughing with me, they're laughing at me. At least they've got something to laugh at. So if I'm on the tube and they make that, well, uh, it's an announcement that generally would make me annoyed. The way that it doesn't make me annoyed, you know, the announcement that says this is a good service. Yeah. To me, that is a qualitative statement, not a piece of information. That is an opinion. And I always now respond with, well, that's your opinion. <laughs> and I say it very loudly almost every time it's said, if I'm on the tube. And people usually look at me as if I'm mad, but occasionally people absolutely get what I'm saying, which is, you know, I want to know when the next train is. Are all the trains running? Yeah. I want facts. I don't want to know whether you think you're providing a good service or not. It's not of any concern to me. So I cheer myself up rather than make myself angry by being a bit mad. Yeah, I think that's it's also that thing is if you don't accept your absurdity and the absurdity of the whole thing, you're in trouble from that point onwards. And I think that's the strange mix that we have now um, in terms of these kind of people who are both both facile and authoritarian at the same time <laughs> yeah. I, I agree with you i think those moments where it's and also it's a beautiful because i'm sure when people sometimes someone looks at you and smiles and nods or whatever yeah. or just uh, and that again that connection mm. will have been that that was worthwhile wasn't it and occasionally people say to me what do you mean and then i will explain the fact that they've just said uh there are delays all over the place this line isn't running on time which is facts that's a that's a quantitative statement and then they finish it with a qualitative statement, which is, it's a good service. And you go, but it can't be if those lines aren't <laughs> running because it's interconnected. So you've just disproved your own statement. You know, I, anyway, I, I could bang on about that for hours because <laughs> it, <laughs> I, I, won't, I won't. Tweet something angry about it. Tweet something yeah, angry. Yeah, oh, I'm furious. And there's an yes. emoticon just for you. Thank you. Well, we're going to put your Kurt Vonnegut doll and its little sign yeah. into the time capsule. So that's two items you've got in so far, Robin. What's next? We're going to take a break here for some adverts. We'll be back very soon. Although, of course, time is irrelevant. Or is it relative? Don't know. I'll have to ask one of my irrelevant relatives. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome back. My relative said the question wasn't really relevant, relatively speaking. So let's waste no more time, whatever that is, and get back to Robin Ince. The next one is, this has got quite a story to it. It's a bit like, I don't know if you've ever done one of those things where you have to pick your favourite songs. And then you think, oh, well, I suppose one of the tricks, because I can't get it down to eight, is to pick a cover. So a band that I love doing uh, a song by someone else I love. So, for instance, Man Who Sold the World, the cover version by Nirvana, that gives you Bowie and it gives you, you know, Kurt Cobain. So that's kind of a double whammy. Or, (laughs) you know, sometimes some of the Johnny Cash covers and stuff like that. This is a letter that I was given by my friend Helen Crimmins. Now, I don't know how much you know about... um, Barry Crimmins. Do you know Barry Crimmins at all? I don't know. Right, Barry was a comedian, a real activist comedian as well. Very, very important on the American comedy circuit, in particular in Boston. In fact, they've just named a square after him. Mm. And um, Barry fought for people. There's an amazing film made by Bobcat Goldthwaite, his friend, a documentary um, called Call Me Lucky, which is about Barry's life and about a moment on stage where he revealed to the audience something terrible that had happened to him when he was a child. And also, to some extent, explained why he was a campaigner, why he was always fighting for those who were struggling more than they need to and those who were forgotten and those that were oppressed. And um, Barry and and I, he's one of those people that we never really got to know each other very well, but we clicked immediately. The first time we spoke, for that point, we communicated a lot. And uh, about nearly three years ago, uh, was I, I met Barry at the Latitude Festival and uh, we were we were going to meet up anyway. It had been a bad week because Barry had just got the news that Helen, who became his wife but wasn't his wife then, um, that she had cancer. Oh. So he had to leave America where he lived, had to come over and uh, to the UK to do a gig. I was chatting with him and he's, he's very grey and sunken and I wandered around with, uh, with, with my wife and my son as well and we kind of took Barry around. And at one point he said, um, oh, we, uh, I, I said, oh, Barry, you know, can't you just, can't you stay at home with Helen? Can't you? He said, well, no, because the cost of, of healthcare is so great, I have to keep on the road. Mm. So we ended up putting on a benefit for Barry. It was uh, Billy Bragg and Charlotte Church and, and Grace Petrie and Alexi Sell and great. Daniel Kitts and loads of people. And then we had this lovely night where um, they watched from Indiana. They watched on the sofa. They watched, and you know, Billy every now. This one's for you, Barry and Helen. And he goes straight down the line, straight down the microphone. Um, and there was, yeah, you know, every now and again, I'd pick up the laptop and go, "Hey, everyone, say hi to Barry and Helen." It was a really lovely night. 
in December, a couple of months later, I got a nice end of the year email. You know, we end the year in a better place, and there's some money for uh, various things that fitted into place to help. The, I mean, it's a ridiculous thing. Mm. One of the things uh, about the NHS that if you really want to know why to protect the NHS, talk to any American who's had a, even something quite minor. Yeah. But, you know, for for Helen, I think she was paying something like eight thousand dollars a month for chemo, eight thousand dollars to live. Yes, that's our NHS, Robin. I'm sorry, you have to use the word "our" before it. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> TM. Um, <laughs> so I'm getting a very long story, but I wanted to tell this story, which was just. And then um, in January, it turned out uh, Barry was diagnosed with cancer, and he died oh. two months later. And I felt particularly an, annoyed for many reasons. One of the things was that we we got very close without very often never being close, if you see what I mean, actually proximity. And in fact, even I remember saying to my wife that I was thinking of getting some money together and going to fly out to see him because I knew he was dying, even though we, you know, we, we communicated a lot, but we, we, we'd barely met. But he died before that. Anyway, so then, then uh, in Edinburgh, we did, uh, in August that year, we did a kind of celebration of his life because the year before he'd played Edinburgh had great reviews. It had gone really, really well. And I, and I, you know, mm-hmm. I feel annoyed because I had a lot of plans for what I was going to do with Barry and the events we were going to do. And yeah. um, Helen gave me this that night, which is a, a letter from Howard Zinn, who is one of my, an amazing anarchist historian who wrote The People's History of, uh, of the United States of America. And it's just, a, it was a letter for Barry, a kind of recommendation. Barry Crimmins is hilariously funny, but more important, his humour comes out of a deep intelligence, an extraordinary understanding of the world around him and an intense commitment to social justice. Howard Zinn, right? So it was for, I don't know mm. what it was for, why he had to write this kind of thing. So there's your double whammy indeed, isn't it? Yeah, it's just, and then, dear Barry, I hope this is the kind of statement that will be useful to you. You can edit as you like, Howard. And and Howard's in again. There's some, some wonderful uh, interviews with him, with Aaron Darty Roy, amongst others. They both had a tremendous humanity. And for mm. Barry, it was a very, he uh, for both of them, you know, personal cost, Barry in particular, he was always available to people if they'd suffered. And they would get in contact with him. And it would destroy him sometimes. Mm. But he would just keep going. And and also I had a, a conversation with Barry when I when I wrote a book and uh, we were talking about jokes and how he edits himself and what he won't make jokes about because no one could call him a snowflake because he took on some of the biggest political and uh, and and kind of corporate that he really took on and cost him mm. work. But he said you always have to remember that words are shrapnel and you have to think about where you are aiming them. So this letter, which is you know I could have put in the his book never shake hands with a war criminal or howard zinn's book or any of his books uh, uh, but i just thought this is uh, this meeting of two minds both of whom were barry once said to me said that kurt vonnegut loved a joke he wrote and he <laughs> said that's because I, I said do you ever feel kind of a little bit annoyed that you, you you haven't had the fame that other people should have had and he went yeah but kurt vonnegut laughed at a joke that i did yeah. And he said it was one of the funniest jokes. You know what? If Kurt Vonnegut, la- that's better than any of the other stuff. And uh, <laughs> and I think, you know, and, and Vonnegut was a big fan of his as well. So all kind of links. But they all, you know, very, very humane people. Mm. I also want to always celebrate Barry because I, I think that the film Call Me Lucky is a tremendously important film. Mm. Um, I warn people that, I, right, what I'm going to say now about what happened to him. I, uh, and, and it was very brutal, okay? So um, Barry when he was a little boy, when he was four years old, was was raped. Oh. And his, you can cut this if you know, if it's not light or, or but I want to just say, and that suffering. And when I saw, Helen took some beautiful photos of, of, of Barry near the end. 
and you you know when you look in the eyes and you see so much of a story and you could see his you could still see, you could see the child you know mm. you could see that and the fact that he was prepared to just keep going out there and fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting mm. and defending everyone is he deserves to be renowned he deserves anyone who is ever thinking of being a comedian anyone who is a comedian anyone who wants to know you know sometimes look at the reasons and, and what you can do with it look at what barry did did with it because he might not be renowned but i would imagine the deep personal effect that he had on probably quite a large group of individuals is probably deeper than than many of the arena comics that we may yeah. well have seen and many of the most famous comics it's lovely that thing of not having to see someone all the time or, in fact, spend much time with them, to have a, a deep connection with them, to have a great friendship, I think. It's nice, isn't it? One of my oldest friends, my friend Ed, who I've known since I was 13, and on, on the occasions we managed to meet up, we never talk about the past. <laughs> We've always got new things. Ah, uh, great, yeah. Oh, man, have you seen this? This is an amazing film. And, and that's the bit, isn't it? Because sometimes you have that moment where you, you, you meet up with someone and you go, all we ever do is we go, hey, do you remember sometimes? Do you remember this? Yeah. And, you, and you, you go, it's still nice perhaps to have that moment, the connection with the past, but sometimes you go, oh, yeah, we're, we're, re- we're past friends, mm. not present friends. Yes, we're just reminiscing. We're just reminiscing about a great time we had together and it's precious, but it's not moved on. Yeah, that does happen. It does happen with friends. It doesn't make them any less important, I think. There seems to be a slight theme going on in, in yours. You really do admire people who could have made the choice in life to be angry about everything and and haven't, have spent it helping other people or getting across a, a message that they think is important. That's the thing. His anger ended up being constructive anger, even at times when it was, was destructive. And in, in fact, in the documentary, there's a bit where, because none of that, what basically happened, I'm, I'm, I hope this is okay to talk about this. Yeah, for, of course it is. It, it's, you talk um, about whatever you want to talk about. But um, I always get worried, isn't it? There's not enough jokes. You know, that's the thing, isn't it? You spend years on the circuit. Not enough is that enough jokes? Is that enough jokes? They can buy the Tim Vine joke book. It's, it's full yeah. of them. It's got loads. Pen behind the ear. Yeah, pen yeah. behind the ear. One of the greatest <laughs> routines ever. Uh, if anyone listening to this has never seen pen behind the ear, just put oh, pen absolutely. behind the ear in a search engine. You will see Tim doing something Genius. utterly joy- the A brilliant level of pointlessness. I yeah. think Albert Camus would have enjoyed that. This is the ultimate absurdity of life. A man with a cup of pens and will he get one of them behind his ear. Um, but yeah, this is a, the, when Barry basically, a lot of comics started to say, you know, hey, Barry, maybe you should take a break from stand-up. You just mainly seem to be angry now. Mm. And he, he got really angry. And then he was doing this benefit. And he was the headliner at this benefit in Boston. And he does his 20 minutes kind of a, attacking the Bush government and stuff and getting, getting great laughs. Mm-hmm. And then he suddenly says, I've always wondered why why I kind of have this anger and why I, I want to defend people who've been the victims of organisations and politicians. And I, I just thought it was because I was brought up in a town where there were a lot of rich people. And he said, and then I realised what it was. And suddenly in this benefit audience, he publicly for the first time talked about what happened to him when he was four years old. Good Lord. And uh, some of the comics actually say afterwards, I, I look back now and I feel terrible because I didn't know what to say and I kind of detached myself from Barry for a while and things like mm. that, which are, of course, very often the natural reactions. We, 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 when we, we sometimes see the true 
horrors that can be committed or when we have a friend who you have two things i think which one is oh god what can i do about it because it's i think sometimes people distance themselves when perhaps someone's got a, 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 an illness or cancer or something like that and they go oh i can't do anything so maybe i, I don't connect with them i don't yeah. no, no no i'm not, not and it's a, a very human reaction yes it's, it's a fear of upsetting people quite often or saying the wrong thing i found nearly always that the best thing to do is to make that leap and to step in and say something and to write that letter and make that phone call. Because even if it's it's sort of ignored, you know, so if you phone someone who you know would answer it and he goes to answer phone and you leave a message, it may be months later, but they'll, they generally will say, thanks for that, it was really nice. And we have got that problem, haven't we, which is we don't have a very good vocabulary for dealing with other people's tragedy. No, it seems a ridiculous thing that that that's one of the main worries that the as you said the fear of embarrassing ourselves, the fear of saying the wrong thing means we do the worst thing, which is to be silent. Yeah, yeah. When would you ever use the word condolences? <laughs> Apart mm. from those occasions when you have to put something on Facebook, that there's something that Helen said actually, which is very hard. Where Helen Crimmins, where, when when we did this benefit, I said to Helen. Do you want to record anything we can play or would you like to write something? You know, would you like to give a message to the audience that are going to be there? And uh, and she wrote this thing, said, you can just read it, just read it out. Mm. And one of the things she said, and she, she'd had cancer in the past as well. This was, I think, the second, I think the second time she had it. And um, she, have, I think her final comment was, sometimes when you ask me how I am, you don't have to say anything else after that. Hmm. And I think that's a very difficult thing for us because we want to be a help, because we want to offer some advice that we think that bit of just going, how are you? And now I listen yeah, is yeah. something which is. Oh, it's hard listening. You've always got something in your head that you want to say. Most people have. And uh, yeah, I do a lot of listening on this. And I have to say, it's been a, a revelation in my life. Because I've not really been a man who's listened to anybody before. <laughs> I've got too many things to say. And it's great to be in a situation where suddenly it's my job to listen. Yeah. And in listening, it's opened up all sorts of things in my mind and things that people have said for the first time maybe in my life. I'm actually listening to people. <laughs> what an idiot. <laughs> I've missed so many things. So we shall put, uh, we should put that lovely double whammy letter into the time capsule for you, Robin. That's three lovely things. So we've got one more thing that you treasure and one thing oh. that you sort of like to banish from your life. This is, uh, I was a huge horror fan when I was a kid. Mm. And I'm one of those typically kind of, one of those children that was scared of everything in the world. So therefore became addicted to watching things that were well, not watching them, reading about them. I know I very rarely saw the films. So when I was eight years old, I bought uh, a book about horror movies by Alan Frank, which I loved. And then I kept buying books about horror movies and I was fascinated by it all. And when I was 12 years old, I wrote a letter to Mrs. Boris Karloff. <laughs> uh, she was the only Karloff in the phone directory. And so I went with it. Yeah. And uh, she sent me back. Here we are. Uh, wow. A letter. A long letter. Yeah. Dear Robin, thank you very much for your nice letter and good wishes. I'm so glad to learn uh, you enjoy my husband's films. Val Luton. I must have written about Val Luton, about the body snatcher and some of the wonderful 1940s Val Luton films. Val Luton was such an intelligent man, a very good director. It was sad he died so early. Uh, it's perceptive of you. And she just wrote this thing to see through the makeup. And and she sent me also this this postcard there of uh, of, of Boris Karloff. As, <laughs> Brilliant. As, as Frank and Sam Bonson. Signed on the back. <gasps> And it's just, it's a lovely thing 
for me uh, for various reasons, which are, one, we thought the letter was lost for a long time. Yeah. And after my mum died and we were doing neat, I never found it, but my dad one day found the letter. Mm. And so without telling me, he kept it all secret and then at Christmas, got it framed by someone. It has this wonderful, you won't be able to see it, it's kind of strange metallic style studded frame as if it is, you know, something that would have been used, the kind of metal to to keep the monster from, <laughs> uh, you know, breaking loose. So it has lots of nice connections, which is my mum would always worry about it. She would always go, I wonder whatever happened to that Boris Karloff letter. And then 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 she died and, and then while we were going through all of these different things, my dad found it and so it also has the connection the fact that he put the bother in of doing that um and uh yeah and it just and the and the horror things meant so much to me as well mm. as a kid and in fact now the older i get i i kind of i love going back to that stuff i did a brilliant horror movie festival in aberystwyth in november last year it's called abattoir and it's <laughs> aberystwyth and uh there was a director there called gary sherman who made a great film called Deathline, which is about a cannibal that lives in russell square station it's an early 70s film his only words are mind the doors not mind the gap mind the doors because that's what he's learned he was brought up and as a baby he grew up and eventually became a, a cannibal and the only language is the announcement mind the doors and i went to that festival so yeah i, I just thought I, w- I would put that there fantastic and there again examples of uh this isn't going to work. Most people in life don't do things because they go, well, it'll be a mess or people won't like it or it won't work. And then you write this letter as a young boy by looking someone up in the phone book mm. and back comes this thing that you've treasured all your life. It's a it's a wonderful thing, isn't it? I've found with age as well, I, I think it's very easy, and I'm sure you've found this. Sometimes you work with people that you admire and you're too embarrassed to say that you admire their work. Mm-hmm. And the older I've got, the more I've just to hell with it. Yeah. And who takes it as an insult <laughs> when they find out that you admire their work? But somehow we're—I don't know if we're worried we're showing weakness. <laughs> you know, maybe maybe it's some alpha male thing. Yeah. I don't know. And so very often with with people, I, I you know I, I suddenly find myself there's lots of I've been very lucky in terms of perhaps because of some of my niche interests. I find myself you know in rooms and meeting people who. One of my favourite ones, that this this is uh, Robin Hitchcock. Mm. I ended up getting him on one of my weird gigs that I do. And he said, oh, I'm going to do the song Ole Tarantula. I wonder if I could have a backing band. And the backing singers were me, Kevin Eldon, uh, the brilliant Joanna Neary, uh, Alan Moore, and I think Stuart Lee. <laughs> and we had that nice moment of all of us stood there thinking, we've listened to a lot of Robin's music over the years. Yeah. And now we're in the background going, ole, tarantula. <laughs> and a lot of the people that I've ended up getting to do some of the weirder shows that I've put on have started off just by sending them a message and saying, oh, I just wanted to say I heard that thing that you did and I thought it was really good. Yeah. And there's no hope of it. It's not, I never do it as initially as an intention, to. but then sometimes they get back and they say, oh, that's really nice, actually. And and then you, you end up having a communication with someone. Yeah. Yeah, so I, th- I think it is really worth the risk of, you know, sometimes just going up to someone and saying, just say, in fact, I I wrote a poem after um, Neil Innes died. Mm. Don't worry, I'm not going to recite it. I mean, I've already burdened you with enough stuff without (laughs) adding my poetry to this. Um, But I was thinking when when Neil died and it was, uh, I didn't know Neil well, I'd worked with him on a few occasions Mm. and he was such a lovely person and he was exactly what you would hope a uh, a Dardarist trained uh, musician would be. And I think it was, 
Neil died, and then after that, of course, Timber Taylor not that long ago, yeah. and Terry Jones. Where all of these people who died in a few short months, I thought, how lucky I've been that all of them I had a chance to say, oh, by the way, that record you made, or that joke you did, or that film of yours mm. is so amazing, and it was such an important thing, and it was really useful to me, and it did, yeah, that 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 moment, and especially with Tim because Tim I, I did an event with Tim in did two events with him in January mm. and he was in such great form and he was so funny he'd done Worthing on the Friday with Clue come up I did a gig with him about Marty Feldman and the last 1948 show and then we did a goodies gig with all three of them with Graham Bill and Tim it was a lovely night mm. and you just go and I'm glad that you know sometimes I've you think, is it embarrassing? Oh, sod it. And you know what? Maybe some people will find it. Maybe some people, yeah, yeah, mate, whatever. Mm. And also seeing the effusiveness of Tim, where I just read this. Have you read a, a book called I, Marty, as in E-Y-E, Marty? No. Right, I bang on about this a lot. I apologise. <laughs> it's, right. it's one of, yeah, like, like a lot of things. I, I always want to go, oh, you have to see this. Oh, good. <laughs> I, Marty was Marty Feldman's autobiography. Ah. And no one knew it existed until his wife died. His wife died and she said, go up to the attic to a friend of theirs. Said, go up to the attic when I die and you know, rummage around. She said, because I can't bear to look at his writing. I can look at photos of Marty. Ah. But looking at what he'd written would be too much for me to, to see you know, all of these scripts that he'd left behind and stuff like mm. that. And so he goes up and he's going through all these scripts and these notes and these screenplays and these ideas and he finds this manuscript and it's a manuscript it's, it's it's Marty Feldman's life story and it's filled with lovely funny things a very beautiful thing that he said uh, when when he was dying mm. Graham Chapman was giving him CPR oh. and uh, he said to say to his wife say thank you very much to her for being so lovely because it meant I didn't have to put my thing in anyone else <laughs> which is just such a what a way what were his last lines he said thank you very much because of your of, of your, your magnificence as a human being he was relieved that he never had to put his thing in anyone else <laughs> and I mentioned when, when Tim turned up to do this event he just literally just got them from Worthing and I said oh Tim have you have you read Marty's he said I didn't even know about it and what was lovely was both Tim and his wife said oh Marty was such a lovely man and you uh, could see it in their eyes mm. this was not showbiz bullshit no. this they're just what a lovely man he was and they were very close they went to the World Cup in 1966 together really? amongst other things God. Um Sorry. No, that's all right. It's a, that's a lovely thing to know. I love all those facts about people. I wrote to Tim Brooke Taylor saying, would you like to be a guest on my time capsule? And then the next day they announced his death. So um, oh. mm, I'm of the age where the goodies were one of those reasons why I became involved in comedy. You know, I saw it and thought, wow. You know, and people, it's almost forgotten really by many people, but it was glorious stuff. Look on with envy <laughs> at my signed copy by all three of the goodies file. Ah, you see. See, that was another thing where, where when we were doing this event, and I, I've met all of them, you know, Graham quite a few times, and 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 Bill dressed as an orangutan when we did something for an orangutan <laughs> SOS thing, and, and, and Tim I've done a few things. But I suddenly, when I was doing the event with them in January, I was like, do you know what? I've never, I think I've got Graham to sign something else. I've never got round to getting the book signed. And so when we were in the dressing before, and I said, I said, you know, Bill, Tim, Graham, is it okay if you just sign? And now, of course, even more so, I think, oh, thank heavens I did that. Mm. Thank heaven. There was no shame and embarrassment. Very often people, I think, almost missed how incredibly quick he was. Because mm. that was the thing is when we did both the events that we did, 
the speed, considering he had driven from Worthing, and I think on the Monday he was driving off to Bradford, you know, to do another clue, mm. and just click, 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 click. And, you know, you could also tell a lot of it was not that kind of, here's my rehearsed anecdote. No. It was going off on a tangent and another memory coming up. And uh... Well, that's because he, he often played the fool, didn't he? He often played the simpleton two other people's intelligent characters. So they would, you know, Graham Garden would be the, the bright one. He would be the, the idiot. And I think people mistake the character you play for the person you are quite often. Yeah. But he was certainly, he was an incredibly funny and bright man. And as you say, there we are, another one, kind. He was a kind man. Mm-hmm. The Slapstick Festival down in Bristol in January, they did a uh, the version of I'm, I'm Sorry, not I'm Sorry, I haven't a clue. I'm Sorry, I'll Read That Again. Really? You know, yeah, they've yeah. been touring that, that version with new actors. Mm. And, and Bill, Tim and Graham came on and did some of their old parts as well. <laughs> oh, wow. And the excitement in Bristol Old Vic, you know, packed out Bristol Old Vic. Yeah. They enjoyed all of the, uh, the the new actors doing doing the stuff. But when, you know, Bill, Tim and Graham would pop on, yeah. uh, oh, it was great. Fantastic. Ah, there we are. Well, so we're going to go back to the letter from Mrs. Boris Karloff to you, and we're going to put it in the time capsule as your fourth item, Robin. So so sorry, by the way, I've realised it's going to be a really awkwardly shaped capsule. I picked (laughs) things which are, you know, in terms of packaging-wise, it's it's all over the shop. Perhaps I'll put them all in little their own little packages, and then then we'll put them in one great big one. So we've got one more item, and uh, this has to be something that you'd like to reject from your life, as it were. Oh, that's so hard, isn't it? Because mm. uh, there's lots, there's lots and lots and lots of things. Uh, <laughs> I would, though, just because of, I think, what it does to all of us, it's something we've talked about before, is I, I would remove my, my social media account from uh, 2008 or whatever it was to 2020. I will uh, bury that. Yeah. I'll bury any of those sanctimonious moments that I had of uh, of judging other people and all of that, you know, those moments of, of unscrupulousness or whatever else they might have been. Yeah. And, of course, the good thing is in the capsule, you won't be able to get a signal anyway. It's very unlikely. <laughs> very unlikely. A Wi-Fi-enabled no. capsule. But I, that, that's one of the things that I would uh, – I mean, in another way, if I could, I would take the entirety of my stand-up career from 1992 to about 2004 <laughs> as well. You know, I'll place that in there. In fact, I, I – can I just put the past apart from the past that I've chosen? All the rest of the past I will have placed in there. It seems only fair. Why not? <laughs> oh, no, but do you not think that you think back on those things and you think, so, oh, that must have been awful. I was really bad at it then. I didn't know what I was doing. And actually, for the people there, it must have been good. It must have been good. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. Yeah, but the, and also, though, the bits when you are... I was talking about this with my sister the other day, actually, when we were talking about things, you know, where you go, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. And, you know, unfortunately, to get wherever we are required the errors that were made. Yeah. And some, you know, some people seem to arrive almost, you know, fully formed. For some of us, it takes years and years to find the the voice or the creative thing that you want to do. And, and as you said, and then more often than not, you will look back at whatever it was that was a year and a half ago and think, I would not do it like that now, which is, of course, a good thing as well mm. because it's pro. But, yeah, I do look back and I go, "What? why did I waste all that time? But then you go, remove the wasted time, and I might not have ended up in the bookshop buying that copy of The Demon Haunted World yes. or whatever it might have been. Yeah. And that's one of the hard things. It's the hard thing, isn't it, with, with free will, with all of the different things we have, which is to remove one item may well change you yeah, know, everything. The pack of cards falls down. Yeah. Well, true. Yes, we are made up of all those parts. But I will for you, just for you. I'm gonna yeah, I'm gonna take away the entire past apart from the moments that you choose. 
Actually, no, better take away the whole past. That that's very damaging. Mm. No, let's just put the social media. Okay, social in media. There. In it goes with you. Yeah, let's get rid of your that. sanctimonious. I'll tell you what I think. And I hope that this time I can manage to remain away. Instagram is the only thing that I have left, which is where I sell books. My ultimate destiny, I've become a bookseller during lockdown, <laughs> uh, which is a lovely thing because you get to communicate with people in loads of locations where normally I'd be playing. Yeah. So I kind of go, ah, I'm not in Keswick now. I would have been in Keswick, but I am sending a copy of Graham Greene's collected short stories there or whatever it might be. You know, <laughs> Again, I, I suppose so much of it, as I keep banging on about as well, that connection thing, which is so nice to have. Yeah, well, uh, clearly over the last few months, that's the thing we've been missing enormously, is that just walking down the street and saying hello. I really miss that. My wife always says, who was that? That's because she she won't wear her glasses when she's out. <laughs> so she doesn't recognise anybody. And I say, it's a neighbour. A neighbour, was it? Oh, I don't know. I can't see. <laughs> I'm almost certainly going to have to cut that out or I'm in trouble. <laughs> oh, Robin, it's been really lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much for giving me your time. It's been great talking to you. Well, thank you for letting me steal all of yours. I'm sure everyone's been a lot more... You know, the brevity, brevity, never a strong... Who needs brevity? We've got time on our hands. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, mate. That's marvellous. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my delightful guest, Robin Ince. I hope you enjoyed listening. If you did, there are plenty of other episodes. You can download them or subscribe to this podcast on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on the classic social media platforms. You just search Fenton Stevens or My Time Capsule. This podcast was produced by John Fenton Stevens and the music is by Pass the Peas Music. It's a cast-off production. Right, I'm off to read a few more books in a vain attempt to become as knowledgeable as Robin. I mean, I do make an effort, but it never seems to work. I remember sitting in the conservatory of the Kent and Sussex Nudist Philosophers Club, and after about an hour, someone asked me if I had read Marx. <laughs> Ridiculous question. I was bound to have, after sitting in that wicker chair for that long. <laughs> Bye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.